Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And we've got a whole range of issues on today's show, from bump stocks to Columbus County political antics to a billion-dollar endowment. Yes. So let's start with uh, the thing no one will feel as controversial, bump stocks. All right. So bump stocks. Uh, If you don't know what these are, um, and we'll go ahead and just put this out there. We're not weighing in on our opinions on bump stocks. Um, Everybody has some when it comes to gun control. Totally understand that. Uh, But these are basically a device that you can attach to a rifle, typically a uh, AR-15 style platform um, of a firearm. They are for rifles. They're not for handguns. Uh, Essentially, what they do is they use the kinetic energy uh, from the recoil of a rifle. So every time you fire it, this is a, it essentially works as a piston. It's part of your stock that goes up on your shoulder. You fire the rifle, physics takes over, it slams backwards and pushes forward automatically. And all you do is basically it helps, it, it helps you fire faster at a rapid speed. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And it's, it's the same, same basic principles of physics. Mm-hmm. Of a um, of an automatic rifle, in that for every time you shoot a bullet uh, forward, there's you know Newton's laws. You know for every action, right. there's an equal and opposite action. So some force is coming back, whether that's kinetic or gas or whatever, mm-hmm. and you can utilize that to re- basically operate a, a mechanism to reload the next round. Right. Um, but the law in general has not considered these to be automatic weapons the way that a, like a fully automatic uh, rifle would be. Correct. A fully automatic machine gun is what we're talking about, is where you hold the trigger down and the, um, and the, the weapon continues to fire automatically without ever having to release the trigger. Um, it can operate in a similar fashion with the bump stock, but it, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I believe it's Louisiana, recently came down with an opinion last week uh, about bump stocks, and we're going to have to back up to 2017 with the Las Vegas shooting. Yeah, that's why these came to prominence. I don't think anyone, myself included, the vast majority of people were not talking about bump stocks prior to this. Correct. Um, you know, there had been discussion, but for the most part, these were novelty items that uh, a lot of people weren't really using, even that, you know, people who are very pro-gun um, I had never seen them. I've been to plenty of shooting ranges, never seen anybody using a bump stock. Granted, I'm not sure they'd allow you to use one at a firing range, a public range anyways. Um, But these are novelty items that, you know, some people might just like things that go boom and it seems fun to play Rambo at at the shooting range. Okay, so after the 2017 shooting in Las Vegas, which killed uh, more than 50 people, I believe, at a music festival when the shooter opened fire from a window in the Mandalay Bay Hotel. Um, Absolutely terrifying tragedy. Uh, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Um, He used a bump stock um, as I believe he had several firearms, but I, uh, you know, they, they did discover one of them had a bump stock, which allowed him to shoot more rapidly into the crowd, killing more than 50 people. So in response to that, uh, actually the interesting part is Congress and the Senate had started crafting some bills to 
um, to outlaw bump stocks and to work on some sort of gun control. But interestingly enough, President Trump issued an order to the DOJ and subsequently the ATF, the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, uh, to do something. And this was, again, uh, very reactionary and took that power away from Congress. So basically what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals was two things. They said, first of all, um, bump stocks are not machine guns under the, uh, the National Firearms Act of 1937, I believe. Um, which outlawed machine guns. We're talking Prohibition era and just shortly after with the Tommy gun being one of the most prevalent weapons um, that, you know, was used by gangsters, Al Capone style stuff. Um, so machine guns were outlawed then through the, uh, through the NFA, um, which was an act sent down by Congress. Now, like I said, two parts here. So first of all, the Court of Appeals said no, um, you don't, this does not make a machine gun. Uh, but secondly, the problem that they took, the bigger problem, and I spoke with an organization called Grassroots NC. They are a uh, constitutional nonprofit uh, group in North Carolina that advocates, among many things, but a lot of them are for pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun rights. Um, they filed an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief, uh, in the fifth district, it was actually cited during the judge's opinion. And the entire argument is not based on gun control, which is really interesting because when you can take the emotions out of decision making like this and say the issue here was that the ATF and the DOJ rewrote the NFA and the Gun Control Act um, to include bump stocks as machine guns. So first of all, the court said, no, they don't meet the definition. Secondly, though, even if we're wrong on this, and this is pretty much verbatim, they said, even if our understanding of, the, uh, of what a machine gun is is wrong, this is up to Congress to make the law, not the DOJ, which is a law enforcement branch, which is, is a part of the executive branch. Um, we have three different branches of government, executive, judicial, and legislative. They all serve different roles. The executive branch is tasked with enforcing laws. The legislative branch is supposed to be making them. So that's where this split kind of came in and why this is really not about gun control. So we were talking a little bit before the show about some analogs to this and why people should care about that. Yeah, and I think – so here's one that's just recently been in the news, and this has to do with the sentencing disparities for possession of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Mm -hmm. So pharmacologically, uh, the same drug, right, cocaine, one is just freed from its base and one is locked in a salt base. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, in the mid-'80s, during the ill-fated and ill-conceived war on drugs, mm -hmm. I believe it was 1986, came up with federal guidelines that punished crack cocaine possession – much more harshly than powder cocaine mm -hmm. possession. And this had, intended or unintended, depending on who you ask, uh, a disproportionate effect on low-income people, which meant largely black and Hispanic offenders. Mm -hmm. And so for decades, um, you know, black men specifically have been going to prison for much longer than white men who had powder cocaine. So the disparity has been in broad daylight for years, 
And Congress has failed repeatedly to correct this. Mm -hmm. So recently, a bill passed overwhelmingly in the House uh, died on the Senate floor. Mm -hmm. But because it passed the House, you had people, you know, who, you know, family members who were literally recalculating their loved one's sentences, saying like, oh, my goodness, this person's going to get out very soon because the bill would have had retroactive effect. Right. Now, it died in the Senate. That's a whole other story about why it died. But as sort of a attempt at make good, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, instructed federal prosecutors to make sentencing recommendations that basically said, you know, judge, you should treat uh, this case exactly the same, whether it's powder cocaine or crack cocaine. Right. Whether it's the, uh, you know, the dilettante party drug or the, the dirty street drug is sort of like the public sentiment around this. Right. Now, there's a couple problems with that. One, federal judges just don't have to listen. I mean, there's a, by law, there's a whole process where the parole office puts together a detailed report on the person who's being tried and prosecutors do their job to present uh, sentencing recommendations and all this context and judges can just ignore it. It's not like North Carolina where there's uh, much more rigorously structured sentencing at the state level. So there's that problem. And there's the fact that it's not retroactive. So all of these people who were in prison awaiting the passage of this congressional law that would have retroactively changed their sentence are now back in their original situation, and that's probably got to be devastating. And, of course, any decision made by the DOJ or the executive branch can just be overturned by the next attorney general or the next administration. So if you are awaiting trial and the DOJ has made this recommendation, you might have a rosier outlook. You might at least be hoping for a more equitable sentence. Another administration comes in, overturns this law, and you're right back in the same boat. The whole process is going to be upended. People's lives are going to be upended. You could say the same for DACA, mm -hmm. uh, which is, again, a failure of Congress to come to any meaningful conclusion on what to do with people um, who are the children of immigrants. And executive action is not lasting. The example you gave, Press, was Roe versus Wade. Yeah, that's an interesting one to me because, you know, you have a 50-year, I believe, 50-year-plus precedent set by the Supreme Court. However, judicial review is a thing. I don't want to get too far into the powers of the Supreme Court. Um, interestingly enough, though, in the 19th century, SCOTUS gave themselves the power to judicial review, which essentially can create de facto law, as we saw with Roe v. Wade. Now, the problem is, as we saw last year, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And whatever position you stand, you know, pro-choice, pro-life, um, the issue became, and this is what the, the court actually ruled on, was, again, if you want to be a pro-abortion state or if you are a pro-life state, that should be up to your legislators to make that decision within the state. Um, you also have so, – so that can – that's what we've seen with different states and especially the red states across the deep south um, creating these – very strict anti-abortion bills within their own state. Now, had Congress acted after this was, you know, decided by the Supreme Court that, you know, the women's rights to abortion, um, had Congress acted and Senate acted and created some sort of law, this wouldn't have been able to be so quickly overturned because they basically just overturned a, a precedent-setting Supreme Court case, which was not written into law. And that is where you get into 
trouble when you have judges creating de facto law, you can overturn that. Now, that is the judicial branch, not the executive, um, but it's the exact same thing. One other interesting um, apolitical decision here that uh, was recently sent to me was, uh, I believe it's a Consumer Protection Bureau or someone to that degree, was talking about banning gas stoves. Yes, you've seen the memes already. Due to the, you know, the the dangers that they could pose. Um, you know, that's that's something I don't think is really a political issue. It's not a hot button topic. But imagine if a bureaucratic agency, and when we say bureaucrats, these are people who are appointed, not elected, making law instead of your lawmakers. And there's nothing you can do. You can't vote these people out. So that's why the courts basically ruled saying, even if we're wrong about the definition, which we don't think we are, but other courts have said that we are, whatever, um, this needs to be a congressional act to ban and outlaw um, bump stocks. And and the president, Paul Vallone, is the president of Grassroots NC, and I talked to him, and that was his entire point. Again, this isn't about gun control, and he, he even said to me, we can sit here and debate the merits of whether this is good public policy to outlaw bump stocks, but the proper venue to do that is in the Senate, in the House, um, and make a law deciding one way or the other, not to allow bureaucrats to make that decision. Because as we just said, it's a very slippery slope and it doesn't craft law, um, especially the NFA is law, though. So when you have bureaucrats changing the definition, when you have the DOJ that can all of a sudden just come in, swoop in and say, hey, this is now a machine gun. You're a criminal if you have one. Uh, that's problematic. Doesn't matter where you stand on this issue because it can happen with anything if we allow that. So that's kind of where this went. Yeah. And I, all I can say about this is that there's a lot of disingenuousness about the separation of powers and who should actually make laws mm-hmm. on the left and the right. It's very common for both political parties to treat executive action and Supreme Court decisions as if they are the forever law of the land, despite the fact that every new administration can overturn the previous administration and every new court has a chance to hear a new case that could, as we saw, upset what was treated as the law of the land. Right. And I think that goes that's that's the war on drugs. That's abortion. That's immigration. Um and also, it is certainly not uncommon for people to disingenuously use the separation of powers um, to put off their responsibility, right? To say, you know, well, we we don't want the executive branch to deal with this. We don't want SCOTUS to deal with this because uh, it's a congressional issue. Knowing full well Congress is so dysfunctional that it will never deal with that issue. Yeah. So I understand where people's frustration comes with it. I understand if you feel a certain way about a certain issue, if you are very pro uh, choice or very pro-life, mm-hmm. and the federal government, the federal executive government, or the Supreme Court takes action in a way that you approve of, you probably feel good. Mm-hmm. But you have to put yourself in the in the thought experiment of what if a, an administration or court that doesn't line up with me ideologically or politically makes a decision that is not the way it's supposed to be made, that is not a congressional law that goes against what you want. Mm-hmm. You're gonna all of a sudden you're gonna be a bit salty about it. So yeah. there, this is you know. At the core of this, yes, it can be used as kind of a what about, um, and both parties are guilty of that. But if you really care about an issue and you care about people, you know, wanting to have some kind of psychological and political stability and safety when mm-hmm. we're talking about people's rights, 
then it's got to be a congressional law because that's the only thing that's durable. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of where we stand. It's it's difficult to ask people to take the emotion out of some of these things. And I, I understand that. But at the end of the day, I am a I am a logician. I am a I'm very pragmatic. So when it comes to following the Constitution and saying, you know, the separation of powers is a thing, I understand the need for quick action. And that can happen through executive order um, and Supreme Court rulings. But, you know, we see it with appeals courts all the time. Decisions get remanded back to lower courts. And um, this is my dream. And that's all it is. It's a pipe dream because it's SCOTUS and they they won't. Um, I would love to see decisions at the Supreme Court level say, you know, no, this is unconstitutional. Congress, go back and make a law, like remand it back to Congress and make them make some sort of action. Um, And really, that comes down to you, the voter. You can elect these people. You can demand action. I know it feels like um, people don't have a voice, but the louder you are, we do see changes happening. Um, It just takes that pressure on your elected officials to make those decisions. And that goes from the local government level all the way up to the federal government. Um, If you want to see policies in place, if you have strong beliefs one way or the other on any sort of topic that is, you know, could be legislated, push your elected representatives to do that. And if they don't act, push to vote them out of office because we don't have enough action. We have a lot of talk in the Senate and in Congress. It's very uh, dysfunctional for lack, well, actually, I think that describes it perfectly as dysfunctional, um, push for action. And these people that aren't taking the steps to, you know, save lives, to protect your rights to certain things, um, if they're not doing it, they need to be voted out. This is the, uh, it's the easy way out for Congress to allow judges and the executive branch to make law because they know it will be unpopular one way or the other and they risk being voted out. So, Uh, That kind of encapsules this story. It's a lot more than just gun control. And I I would venture to say it's not about gun control at this point. It would become a gun control issue had the Senate, had Congress taken it up. Yeah. Um, Okay. so before we take a break, I want to just catch up on the latest from the saga of Jody Green, which is now, in a way, the saga of John David, district attorney for Bladen, Columbus and Brunswick County. Yes. So this is interesting. We've talked all about Jody Green. You can go back and listen. Um, John David, DA, as you just mentioned, uh, filed a two petitions to have Jody Green, former Columbus County Sheriff, removed from office two times. Now Jody Green has resigned from his position. Um, this was unpopular with a lot of people because a lot of people saw this as undermining an election. Um And recently, the Columbus County GOP, I believe it was Wednesday, made the announcement that they were looking to have to file a petition to remove John David from office, which is interesting because John David is a Republican. Um, And, you know, this they Sammy Hinson, the president, uh, the chairman, I believe, of the GOP out there. Um, said to John Evans at WECT, look, this is not just about Jody Green. This is about some other issues. He wouldn't expand on what those issues are. Um, so, But he did say a lot of people feel like their vote didn't count now that Jody Green's out of office and all these sorts of issues. So that's they're basically trying to 
uh, have him removed. So they say, I checked yesterday on Thursday, there have been no, uh, there's been no petition filed to remove John David. I did finally get a response from the DA. And uh, to be clear, he is working right now to prosecute a capital murder case. And that is, you know, where his head is at. So I, I do give him some slack for not responding to this. Um, he did end up sending me a statement, basically said, listen, I don't believe this is the party. I believe this is a small group of Jody Green supporters who are mad at me. Um, and that's why they filed this action. We haven't seen any action actually filed, but that's why they make this announcement that they're trying to remove him from office. So um, right now it's much ado about nothing because nothing has been filed. But yeah. And as you as you reported, um, it is rare for a superior court judge to order the removal of a sheriff. It's even more rare uh, for a district attorney to be removed. In fact, I think it's only happened a couple times. Yeah, it, it's certainly not common. And that that does go to the entire point of elections and voting in the people that you want to see. Um, we've even seen it at the the county commission level where we had a lot of people asking us, why don't they remove Julie Olson Bozeman when all these allegations against her came out and uh, criminal and civil, you know, possible issues. So it's not easy to undo an election. Once the bell is rung, it has been rung. And it shouldn't be easy to undo an election. Correct, because that is the will of the people. And if you if it was easy, you would just have political opponents going around all day filing petitions to remove someone from office. Um, so do I think it will be successful without actually seeing any sort of petition and what they're going to claim? I'm not even sure what their standing is going to be. Um, there's seven different criteria. One of them is uh, willful misconduct, refusal to, you know, uphold your end of the deal and do what you're supposed to do. Um, crimes involving moral turpitude, but you have to be convicted of a crime. Um, I don't think John David has been convicted of any crimes. Uh, so not sure what the standing is. Uh, working to get more information. I did reach out to both uh, Bladen and Brunswick County's GOPs. Didn't get any statements whether or not they support this, um, but it does seem like a unilateral announcement from Columbus County's GOP. All right. Well, we'll have to put a pin in that one and follow it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of agree. From what we know right now, it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes. Uh, if there are, you know, but hey, we, we will we will press pause on that until we see all the evidence. Um, but so far, no evidence. Yeah, exactly. All right. Good time for a break. Definitely. All right. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the new Hanover County Endowment. Exciting. Exciting. Welcome back to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And it's time to talk about the endowment. Yeah, this is a very interesting, and you just published a very thorough, um, objectively speaking, great article um, about the New Hanover County Endowment uh, Fund Group. I don't know what their exact name is. The nonprofit that handles the $1.25 billion funds that New Hanover County received from the sale of uh, NHRMC, the hospital. So, 
we've talked a lot about the sale of the hospital. No matter where you stand on that, it was an unpopular decision for the majority of people that county commissioners still went ahead with. Um, they promised that this money would be used to fund local needs and this money would go back into the community. But right from the rip, we had some serious issues when it came to not just selling the hospital and the, the lack of transparency with that, but with how this community endowment was crafted and created. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to just right here up at the top um, express my gratitude for William Buster, who is the CEO and president of the endowment. Um, he is not a public official. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, you know, he is the private head of a private foundation, mm-hmm. um, or at least what will become a private foundation. It's still in transition. And he does not have to come into the WHQR studios and talk to me for an hour and a half. He was certainly more um, more generous with his time than many elected officials yeah. who should be more accountable have been. So thank you to that. That said, um, before he was hired, the well was to a certain extent poisoned by a number of things. One was, yeah, the, sh- the way they set this thing up. And there are examples of uh, – there are public – nonprofit endowments mm-hmm. or uh, and a good example of that would be the state employees uh, pension fund mm-hmm. which is overseen by Dale Falwell and so one of the arguments was that if this was a public government overseen body it would not be able to um, get enough return on investment that is patently false yeah. and you can look at the annual audits and returns from the state employees pension fund um, it, it's around five or six percent which county commissioners said they wouldn't be able to do if it was public. So they either lied or deliberately ignored evidence to the contrary or misunderstood the situation so badly that I would have questions about their competence to have been overseeing this monumental task of creating the endowment. Or there was some, you know, hitherto unexplained, undocumented, unmentioned statute or law that prevented them from doing what other government bodies had done that they never articulated well. So there's four options, and I don't feel good about any of them. That's as strongly as I can put that, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And uh, Okay. So, yes. Yes. All right. So <laughs> think that's thing one. Thing two is that they could have also made this a non-government um, agency that was still more public. And a good example of this is the Golden Leaf Foundation. Mm-hmm. So this was created at the end of the 90s. Um, it handled about half of the overall settlement from um, cigarette companies and the state of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Its endowment site is roughly, it's in the same order of magnitude, ballpark, billion plus. Right. Um, it is audited by the government annually, um, and those reports are made public. It is responsive to public records requests. So it is sort of a quasi-government body. Right. It has some separation from the government, uh, which deals with concerns that, yeah, maybe you don't want county commissioners in charge of a billion-dollar petty cash fund. Mm-hmm. I, I can understand that. Certainly. But there were definitely there was definitely another option on the table, and they explicitly and deliberately avoided it. Yes, and this was a former state representative or state senator? I believe it was a state rep. I'd have to uh, go back and check. We'll have links on the page. Yeah. Of, but they brought a guy in to basically say, um, you know, you don't want this to be public. You don't want it to be responsive to public records. And one of the um, mind-bending things that he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, was that, oh, well, stuff gets done behind closed doors anyway that public records wouldn't be able to access. Right. So what's the point? Um, yeah. Which is a middle finger in the face of anyone who cares about government transparency and specifically to reporters. Yeah, exactly. And th- 
you know, I I tend to avoid weighing in on opinion, but um, as journalists should. But this is right is right and wrong is wrong. And I have no problem taking the stance that government should be transparent. And when the hospital that you, the taxpayer, paid for um, was sold out from under you and then sold out to a private nonprofit group and you have no transparency, no oversight, and it was deliberately crafted for you to not have that ability to audit them, um, I think anybody, uh, including county commissioners, uh, should have major issues with that, but they didn't. They passed it uh, willingly, knowingly that this was to avoid transparency. One of the other things he said was, oh, if uh, when they created this and they asked about transparency, uh, we don't want politics to play a role in this, so that's why we're not going to uh, allow any public oversight of this, which is just completely absurd to me. And to be honest with you, I, I don't know how it's legal that they took public money, threw it into a private foundation, and don't allow us to see or audit it. Uh, granted, the IRS does do some auditing and things like that, but... Uh, you, the public, have no say over where your $1.25 billion goes now. So uh, congrats on that. Yeah. And also, there is a – I mean, when you, we consider the definition of political, if we're talking in the strictest sense, mm -hmm. it is still uh, a somewhat political body. Politics still play a role because the New Hanover County Board of Commissioners does appoint some of the board members. Mm -hmm. And then there's the broader sense of political in that people have political motives. Mm -hmm. So the folks from Novant who also get to appoint people to this board, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, also probably have – Political agendas. People have political agendas, yes. right? So, I, I, in a world in which we're free of that, uh, is I don't know. That's not where we live. Yeah, utopia. Yeah. So, that's the issue of transparency. The other issue is the issue of where this money gets spent. So, what's happening is the um, the, the endowment was originally set up as a public charity. It's transitioning into a private foundation. That's a distinction without a difference in terms of public records. But in terms of how much money they are required to put into the community, it mm -hmm. does matter. Um, so it basically gives them a couple of years. I think it's four years mm -hmm. where they have before they have to start putting around four or five percent. Uh, I think it's four percent right. of the endowment into the community. So for now, you know, the most recent the first rather grant round was about nine million dollars. Um, but the bylaws say you can only spend that money on organizations that are working in New Hanover County. Mm -hmm. This is a problem for a couple of reasons. The first is just a straight up issue of equity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm talking about geographical fairness because I believe uh, William Buster told me it was 68, 68 percent mm -hmm. of the revenue going into the hospital at the time of the sale um, and going back years. It was definitely the uh, the plurality because mm -hmm. it came from a number of other counties, Columbus, Brunswick, Bladen, Onslow, Pender, I believe. Yeah. Um, so more than half of that money was coming from uh, patients from outside of New Hanover County. That allowed New Hanover Regional Medical Center to grow into a regional titan, mm -hmm. and that is why Novant spent $2 billion buying it. Right. Those counties won't see a dime from the endowment the way the bylaws are currently written. Mm -hmm. So they basically took money from less affluent, more rural counties all around New Hanover County and are now spending it on social missions here in New Hanover County, one of the most affluent in the state. So that, on the face of it, is one of the most baldly unfair things I've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. And when the endowment was first set up, we heard some pushback from 
folks in Leland, folks in Brunswick County, folks, folks in Pender County. But it, they had no agency because this was now effectively a private uh, foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, they, what could they do? They could complain, but they had no way to change it. So I want to talk about these two things, transparency and, and the lack of fairness here. Um, but I also want to say that the we may en- eventually end up having to find ways to sneak money across the county border simply because so much money is going to be coming out of the endowment. No one knows what to do with it. Right. Uh, but that's a, lo- that's a longer story for another time. So when it comes to the issue of transparency, um, you know, the former chair, I think he was the chair for the first couple of few years, uh, Spence Broadhurst of the endowment, said he was perfectly happy with the level of transparency. We obviously disagree with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did offer to make, uh, they actually were forced to make some concessions by the Attorney General Josh Stein, mm-hmm. where they would uh, have some kind of semi-annual report. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's not the level of granular transparency because, yeah, it's nice to know what they're doing. That is great. But mm-hmm. if we had a potential conflict of interest, say you've got a board member who has a friend who runs a nonprofit and then the nonprofit gets a uh, conspicuously large grant. Mm-hmm. We would obviously want to pull all those emails and see how that was discussed. Could they do this all in back rooms with no email and no text messages and, and keep it off the radar? Of yeah. course. But honestly, as journalists, that's the level of, of access we would want. We don't have it. Um, I will say William Buster said he is working to in- improve the sort of website infrastructure so he can get more information. Mm-hmm. One of the things we wanted to see was the grants and the applications and materials related to that. We'd, we would like to know, because I still consider this to be public money, because mm-hmm. it came from the sale of a publicly owned hospital. Yeah. Um, other people would dispute me that it's now magically turned into private money, but I, I don't philosophically agree with that. No. But I'd like to see what the process was, not just because I'm a transparency hawk, but also because we're going to be you know, living in a world with endowment from now on. Mm-hmm. And I think public organizations and nonprofits should know how the decision was made. When the, when the county decides to fund nonprofits, right, they have a whole rubric. They have a score sheet. They have uh, mm-hmm. applications. And you can – it's all public. You can look at all this stuff. Um, so when the endowment gives money to a nonprofit, we'd like to see who applied. What did they ask for? Mm-hmm. Um, how were they rated? Because, say, you're a nonprofit who didn't get a grant during this first cycle. Uh, and full disclosure, WHQR is one of those nonprofits that didn't get a grant. But this is that's uh, outside of my wheelhouse – there are also 199-some other right. organizations that didn't. So for all of those people, I'm sure they would like to see, and I believe they have the right to see, who got money and why. Yes. So that's the transparency part. It is literally up to the board and Buster. It is not up to the people. That's mm-hmm. not the way we feel it should be, but that's where we're at with transparency. Then there's the longer-term story of the geographical boundaries. So I do have a question about yeah. that. Just to play devil's advocate for a minute here. Um, while I understand that money was coming in from patients outside of the region, uh, or outside of New Hanover County, rather, we don't share our tax dollars. When people from Pender and Brunswick County come in to Wilmington and spend money um, in downtown at the bars, um, they're paying the municipal services district tax, they're paying sales tax that goes here, they're paying, you know, uh, the park bond and transportation bond. Um, yes, a lot of our revenue in the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County comes from people living outside of here. Um, ultimately, we're not giving any of that money back to Pender and Brunswick County there. So why? Um, I I understand the 
the altruism and the the equity issues, but we don't share our tax revenue with them. Why should they be getting any part of this? That's a great question. Here's the answer. The new Hanover Regional Medical Center, while it was still a publicly owned hospital, aggressively pursued monopolistic practices in the counties surrounding New Hanover County. Mm -hmm. So they made efforts to control the uh, local practices. And the point there is that if you if if NHRMC owns your local practice Mm -hmm. and you go there and the doctor's like, okay, well, we're doing your annual checkup. You're probably going to need a hip replacement you should go to New Hanover Regional Medical Center in New Hanover County. It's a spoken wheel device, and this allowed um, the hospital to pull in patients for very profitable elective surgery. So this is hip replacement, knee replacement, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not talking about like gunshot wounds and car crashes. Right. And so they aggressively worked to uh, monopolize a seven-county region mm-hmm. so that they could, and that is what drove their revenue, and that is actually what broke, that what drove the hospital to the breaking point was that it was so aggressively attempting to expand and control the counties around it, but it was not able to spend public money from New Hanover County on infrastructure in those surrounding counties. Now, they could, through various third-party agreements like with Atrium, control practices, but mm-hmm. they couldn't build medi centers and hospitals. Right. Um, and that is why they wanted to break out of the public mold into the private mold so they could now spend money in those other counties. It's as if Wilmington's Downtown Incorporated, right, aggressively pushed restaurants in Brunswick, Pender, and Columbus County out of business. Mm-hmm. So you had to come to Downtown Wilmington to eat at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of the that's a weird analogy, but that's that's kind of what happened. Sure, and that makes sense. And I think a lot of people were going to have that question, and that was a legitimate question. I wasn't like baiting that. I didn't oh, know no. the answer. I mean, that was legit because it just on the face, it's New Hanover County's hospital. The taxpayers funded it whenever it was created. Uh, that's why I was wondering why why should that money go outside of the people who actually actually footed the bill at the beginning of it all, uh, and because it does draw that, uh, I, I don't want to say attraction, but because it does attract people from around the region because it's, uh, you know, the best hospital in the area, the only hospital in the area um, for all intents and purposes. Um, so I, I think that is a fair explanation. And with that said, uh it is still a monopoly. We still don't have even a need study for a second hospital. That is an entirely different story. Um, but again, one that you, the listener, the voter, can change by pushing to get some sort of competition into here. I can't tell you the amount of emails that you and I both get. I know it, that you get it. I don't have to look at your emails that are complaining about Novant. Um, if we had Fry or, you know, uh, Atrium, whatever, Another hospital system in the region, um, competition is good for the customer. It's not great for the for the monopolies looking to control everything, um, but I think the need is clear, and I don't know what it will take to get that need study done to actually build a new hospital here. Yeah, so the last thing I'll say is that we obviously have concerns about transparency and equity when it comes to the endowment, but there is no denying it will do some mind-blowingly good work. Yes. Um, the concern is it could probably do a better job with more transparency. That That's where we're coming from, is not to say the endowment is evil. Or no, that not at all. There's nothing bad about 
tens of millions of dollars going into the community to address some of the most serious issues we have. Mm -hmm. And it's not to disparage the current board or buster. No. It's just saying that when this, when you have a billion dollars of what was public money and they're saying, trust us, Mm -hmm. well, trust but verify. And how do we verify? Well, and I I think any politician in New Hanover County telling me to trust them, I'm going to have a (laughs) issue with just based on past fiscal um, decisions that have been made with, um, you know, projects that have gone way over budget and the spending of public money. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to trust a billion plus dollars, um, you know, because even if there's misallocation of just a million dollars out of a billion is a drop in the bucket. And it's going to continue to keep growing because um, at the end of the day, they're not even touching the principal. That $1.25 billion is going to stay in the investment accounts. And we're basically going to live off the dividends of profits that we get from that. And if you can grow a billion plus fund by 4% a year, which is a pretty good ROI, um, that we're talking millions of dollars. So that is kind of where, where I come from. And I think you and I are in agreement. I'm a uh, you're a little more uh, sunshine when it comes to, you know, um, whether or not the well is tainted here. I believe the well has been completely drained and filled with muriatic acid. Um, I don't think it is a potable well anymore because of this lack of transparency. That's not to, again, not to criticize the board. It's not to say that they can't do good. I fully believe that they will do good. Um, but in terms of me trusting them, I have and I, I don't think the public should have very much faith until we get to see and audit it for ourselves to see how they're making these decisions. Because uh, real quick, just if Planned Parenthood applied for a grant from this, if you have a majority right wing board, you know, then they're not going to get this that that funding more than likely because of political stances. So if this was transparent, we'd be able to see and we'd be able to ask those tough questions. But if we don't even know that they turned down Planned Parenthood, we don't know what we don't know. And that's what flies under the radar. And that's what leads to um, political backroom decisions being made. Yeah. All I can say is I know there are good people on the endowment board. Mm -hmm. I believe William Buster is an earnest person, but I'm a reporter. And when God sends me a resume, I check the references. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a good place to leave it. We got into a lot of heavy stuff. So there is going to be some some links you can click. Uh, I think we did a pretty good job summarizing it up. Uh, This is not the Reader's Digest version, though. So I hope you have a long road trip when you're listening to this one. Yeah, if you made it this far, thanks for sticking around. And we will see you next week. All right, we'll see you then. (laughs) 